Welcome to another episode of the Limitless Life Podcast. I am your host, Kyle Smith. And if you have not done so, hit that subscribe button so that you never miss another podcast. And if you love this podcast and want some more tips and tricks on how to improve yourself, go ahead and subscribe to my YouTube channel. There are a ton of instructional videos there. You can find the links below. But for today, my friends, my brothers and sisters, from other misters and sisters, my guest is Chris Maxwell who is an online coach who has worked with a diverse range of clients from athletes to celebrities. With over 13 years of coaching experience, Chris is an expert in hormone optimization and lifestyle design and has helped countless women transform their health and well-being during menopause. Chris, my man, the myth, the legend, thank you for being on my podcast. I appreciate it. Of course, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. My pleasure. So my friend, how does what you do impact the people around you? Impact the people around me. So what's really neat about what we do here, or at least what I do, is being able to impact the people around me. That's, there's two points to that. It's yes, the family that I'm able to provide for, you know, which is really awesome to be able to do that from comfort of home, work remotely, to be able to touch people's lives, not only from California, but all the way up to the East Coast, right? And even past this, I think, you know, you're from Canada, right? So, you know, being able to connect, that's the beauty of remote, but more so about showing people that there's a chance, there's hope, right? Like, you're not a lost cause, especially for the women that I work with, you know, especially in menopause, you know, there's been 10, 20, 30 years sometimes of past failures, and it feels like they're stuck. So being able to bring some different strategies to them that they're not used to hearing about, uh, focusing on things that they think that have no connection towards their health and weight loss and nutrition, and saying that, hey, these things are connected, let's optimize this over here so we can get you in a healthier spot. Seeing the impact and knowing the impact it has in their households, it's almost like a generational impact. It's not just them themselves. It's, hey, now their grandkids get a healthier version of grandma that they can play with. Now they get memories that they weren't getting for the last couple of months or couple of years because grandma was too tired, right? Or vice versa. I mean, it can expand into many different ways, but just that's probably the biggest impact is knowing that they can unlock the best versions of themselves post 40, post 50, even post 60. I love how uh, you're taught, you're, you refer to it as gen. I look at it as generational health instead of generational wealth. You're providing a longer life, more capable life, health and fitness so that they can just bring their A game for longevity. And obviously by these ladies taking care of their health, their grandkids are going to see that. And then that's going to start perpetuating the good decisions towards uh, longer living. So my friend, how is it that a fellow like yourself got into coaching women, especially with hormone optimization and hor- or menopausal women? Yes. That's, that's a great question, Kyle. So Everyone always asks that. Everyone kind of raises an eyebrow, especially women. Why should I listen to you? You're a man. You've never been through menopause. And you're right. I guaranteed I biologically never will. Right. And in fact, that's why I feel it's like an even better situation for me to help because I carry a level of unbiasedness and perspective. Right. Well, I think one of the worst things that can happen for women in menopause is they rally the wagons together. And what I mean by that is hey, I went through menopause too, and oh my gosh, it was terrible. And all of a sudden, yes, there's relatability to understanding it, but sometimes there's different transfers of feelings where it may not actually be what someone's feeling, right? Or what is really going on. But they feel that it was this version of menopause was terrible for them, so therefore, I'll pass it on to you. 
And for me to be able to help them, again, I come from that level of unbiasedness, right? I can say, hey, let's look at this from a very logical perspective and a strategical perspective to get you the best results. And how I fell into it was first, I just used to work with mainly women under the sun. It was just mainly I noticed that women had more drive for change. Um, a lot of the women I worked with had hormonal imbalances, whether it be, you know, PCOS, Hajimoto's, hyperthyroidism, um, lots of different ones, you know, and it can definitely have a big effect on weight loss and, you know, the transformational journey. But then what I did find was that as I continued to help women in the hormonal imbalance space, what was really happening and the real hormonal imbalances that we were really challenged with was menopause, you know, and there's three stages of menopause. There's perimenopause, which is a very crummy stage. It's probably the longer stage of things. That's when your body's kind of getting ready for menopause. Um, you know, the hormones like estrogen and progesterone kind of start playing a wacky dance. They start kind of going up and down, getting weird. And it causes a whole other slew of what I call the hormonal hurricane through all the way up until menopause, which is typically about a year. And then there's postmenopausal, which is just the aftermath, right? And the forever forward. So I really shifted into that because I realized a lot of the women and the issues that they were having were really kind of more geared towards what was happening there. And I felt, you know what, this is a guaranteed change that most women are going for or are going to experience in life. And I want my legacy to be something to where I can help them make changes and to know that, hey, this is coming no matter what, what are we going to do when this time comes? What type of a plan are we going to follow? What type of system or strategy are we going to use? Because typically what they have used in the past isn't working anymore, right? And so it's it's that newfound approach that uh, that I'm able to help them with. Dude, that's so cool. So what are, because I'm absolutely selfishly learning now. So what are some common misconceptions? Because you mentioned that you have a different perspective, mm -hmm. right? What are some common misconceptions about going ladies going through menopause or experiencing? What are some misconceptions that mo a majority of your clients come to you with? So the biggest is a good one. So the biggest misconceptions I think is them thinking that, it, and yes, the the information's not incorrect, but I think it gets taken way out of context. Is I got to eat less and move more, right? And that. Yes, it's not incorrect, but again, when you have to look at certain things, most women are not getting enough nutrition in, right? And moving more isn't the answer, right? Like activity is great, exercise is vital, but more of it is not the reason why you're here, right? Mm -hmm. There's other reasons, right? So I think that's the first misconception there is that it's going to be just strictly nutrition and strictly exercise. That's the tactical approach, sure, but we also have to look at a couple other things. We're dealing with about 20, 30, possibly even 40 years of not so successful attempts at weight loss. What type of havoc has that done up here, right? When it comes to the mental state of things, when it comes to actually saying, hey, do I feel courageous enough to give myself another chance at getting healthy and getting happy with my life and my body, right? Someone won't even start that. Another misconception is understanding that, you know, um, there's typically a lot of anxiety and overwhelm. That is a symptom and side effect of menopause. Well, what's the best one of the best ways we can manage that? Well, through taking a little bit more control back in our schedule and our time, right? Learning how to actually put the right habits in place without having to do either or, without having to sacrifice and say, it's my family time, it's my grandkids need me, my husband needs me or my spouse, so therefore I can't do X, Y, and Z. But when we say, hey, let's really look at this from a bird's eye perspective, like a 30,000 foot view, you can have both. You can still do your self-care and still be there for your family. And if anything, you're going to show up way better for your family because you're taking care of yourself right? That's a lot of the big misconceptions that I guess aren't talked about is that there's a big lifestyle design and lifestyle shift that needs to happen if you're really looking to get the most out of your midlife metabolism 
forever forward. I like that midlife metabolism. Oh, I'm a, I'm a sucker for alliterations, man. That is for sure. Uh, so on the, on the note of the narrative of, or the expectation, like, I think that there's kind of like a societal expectation for people to just care for others more than themselves and put others first before themselves. And I find that that's especially, especially, uh, certain with mama bears, you know, Mm -hmm. How, how is it? So you mentioned that it was like strategy and stuff like that. Is there a specific strategy that you help or utilize with your ladies in order to kind of mitigate that perceived that guilt that may come along with that? And how, how about do you go around that like tricky situation? That's a good question. Yeah. So if I'm understanding you correctly, it's about just that guilt of giving back to their own self-care, Correct. Right? So how we do that, I have a very specific mantra that I teach all my ladies that I work with, and we're really big on measurement. And what I mean by measurement, it's not just by not the scale and food, and that's some of it, but actually like measuring wins, measuring progress, right? And the neat part about collecting that data, and because what is measured is managed, right, is you get to start making correlations to the data that we've measured and the progress that you've made in your life in other areas, such as mm. having more energy, Right. I had one of my most recent clients. She just turned 60 years young and she just told me this. And this is a, I'm jumping in joy for this for her. Uh, her name's Cindy. So I'll plug her name. And so she's telling me that this is the best that she's felt in her skin at 60 years young to date. Right. That's a huge win. Right. To saying, I feel amazingly, outrageously confident in this body that I have. Right. Doesn't mean we're done. It doesn't mean she's done. It just means I feel great. Right. And again, that's one of the easiest ways is when you can start to correlate those feelings and the other experiences that you have with the others around you and say, Hey, well, I've done self-care recently and this is the result that I got. Right. So therefore this isn't something I should feel guilty about because it's bringing a positivity back, not only to me, but to the others around me. Now they're getting a happier version of me. They're getting a more energized version of me and I get to be there for them more and pour into their cup more. Right. I don't really have a specific system for that. I kind of, uh, I kind of bugs bunny some of my clients a little bit to saying, hey, this is what we're going to have to do. And then once they go through the process, they're like, oh, my gosh, all these great things. I said, I know I couldn't tell you that this is what how it works. But yes, this is how it works. Like <laughs> when you measure your wins, you have a transformation inside and out, you know, not only physical, but physiological and psychological, you know, there's the three piece to it. So that's kind of the system that I work with is really a lot of measurement and then celebrating wins. That's a big one. I don't think there's enough of that. I mean, 80 percent of thoughts that run through human brains are negative, right? So how do we focus on the wins? And sometimes you have to train yourself to look for progress and look for a win. And I teach that to all my clients. We have a weekly coaching call. And the first thing that we start off with is what is the win of the week that we're going to share with ourselves and everybody else? And it starts training us to look for those positives. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a great way to kind of smash up with the, the guilt that typically comes with self-care. I really like that. Yeah, that's fantastic, dude. I think that's such a, that's such a huge, uh, power up when that, like when that, when you, what we were talking about before, uh, giving people permission to feel like they can take care of themselves. Like, uh, I, I think that that's hugely important and everybody that can is listening right now has permission to take care of themselves because when they take care of themselves, everyone benefits, mm-hmm. everybody benefits around the people and it just ripples out. It's a ripple effect. Like we're the stone casting into our ocean and then or in our pond. And then we're just like rippling out positivity and badassery as we're just like 
going on through life, man. It's freaking sweet. Absolutely. You know, this was taught to me by one of my mentors, and this is especially applicable to, like you said, the mama bears, the grandma bears out there is I think by proxy, it's typical to want to give out so much from their, from their place of being right. And as moms, as grandmas, you give, you give, you give, and you just, until you give out. Right. And there's that level of acceptance of like, well, I guess this is what midlife is. You know, you're, you're not supposed to be in the best shape of your life. You're not supposed to have a ton of energy, you know, getting older sucks, you know, or whatever it is. And again, that was taught to me by one of my mentors, Joe Marcoux, and it hits really home every single time. You have to give back if you want to keep giving out, you know, so that's, it's definitely a good point that you mentioned there. Mm, that's amazing. You have to give back in order to give out. Is that what you mentioned? Mm -hmm. Excellent. I am totally stealing that. <laughs> that's great. So yeah, I mentioned something when, before the show and you're definitely right where we were going to touch on it again. And I absolutely, it, it, in my mind, it ties in with generational health mm -hmm. and it is the cost of inaction, not the ROI, but the COI, not the return on investment, but the cost of inaction. And you had a fantastic story about that, but can you like deep dive or not deep dive, but dive into that a little bit more because you got everything in there and yeah. And then pushing through defeat as well. I think the beautiful combination there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So as far as like the cost of inaction, that's what you're talking about. Yes, sir. Yeah. So I think it's that. I think so many people are, are they don't focus on, I think they fear the change and there's a lot of resistance to that. Kind of like we talked about, you know, is okay, this is where I'm at and oh, you're going to tell me I'm going to have to make some changes and, you know, whether it be with time, energy, financial, you name it, like it, there's going to be a change and there's always a requirement. And the interesting thing is, I have to propose this to people, okay, what happens two years from now if nothing changes? And sometimes, believe it or not, it doesn't have to be two years. It could be a month. It could be a couple months. could be a couple days, right? But if nothing changes, what is it going to cost you? And at this point, I can even say, what is it going to cost others around you if you stay in the spot, right? And it typically is not a question most people are used to hearing. So they kind of have to sit back and ponder on it and go, okay. And you know, and typically, unless they have experienced something bad from not taking action, right, it's hard for them to kind of find where it is. But when they finally do, they realize, okay, I've got a bigger problem here, right? Because it starts to spiderweb out a little bit. And again, you go from having a very surface level problem to a very deep rooted problem and realizing that it's a bleeding wound and you need to get it fixed. Otherwise, it's only going to continue to get worse. And that can be applicable to a lot of things, right? Not just your health. Um, but I think the cost of inaction, again, is something that I think people, when it comes to big decisions or even regular decisions, even just the way they choose to live their life, am I happy with the trajectory of this, of where it's going? Because in the beginning, you know, if anyone that's done any type of construction that might know this, right, or just knows general math or geometry, you know, at the starting point, being one to two degrees off is not that big of a deal, right? Mm -hmm. But if you keep following that line down, it's going to get wider and that gap is going to get huge, Right. And that's essentially what happens. The cost of action opens you up to that, to realize this is what happens if I do nothing. So therefore, it's probably best in my interest. I should change. Man, I love that. I'm a big fan of future casting. And I personally believe that a majority of people are more driven to avoid pain, but they just haven't thought of how painful they're willing to go on before change is necessary. Mm -hmm. I, I think that uh, when we start as a 
pleasure-based goal. Like, Oh, I want to get shreddies for summertime. I, I want to like work on my freaking glutes for my short shorts. And just, I want to wear shorts and work on my calves kind of thing. And then I believe at a certain point that pleasure base where we're searching for that, just like feel good kind of thing. It slowly just kind of like vanishes away. It just goes away. And then we find ourselves kind of in that same stagnant mindscape that we were in before we started making changes. And I believe that we need or not need, but there is, it's, it's in some people's best interest to have a pain-based goal or a pain avoidance goal Mm -hmm. in alignment or in correlation with a pleasure based goal. And that's where the homeo, the sweet spot or the Goldilocks zone between uh, scared to death and super excited kind of intertwine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and that's a great point that you brought up because, you know, again, if I, when you were saying that, I was just imagining, imagining a straight line straight across and yes, I want to get shredded or I want the, you know, I want this type of look for summer and they're up here. And if they don't accomplish that, where do they fall back down to baseline? Right. Exactly. Just zero fall back down to zero and it's fine. But when you fall into negative, which is, Hey, I got problems. I just got dumped. Uh, you know what? Like, I don't feel comfortable on skin. I don't feel comfortable taking off a shirt. I don't feel comfortable wearing a two piece, you know, uh, you know, you name it. Right. And that's for more of the younger generation of things that they feel you know, um, that type of stuff is willing to get people to move more, you know, um, is I don't want to feel this anymore. I'm tired of feeling self-conscious at the pools with my shirt off. I'm tired of telling my friends no, because, you know, I'm going to be the oddball of the group who's not in shape or is not healthy, you know, or whatever it may be. Um, but I think it's a great way to put it, you know, about the homeostasis of just getting back to the normal and getting people using pain as a driver. Totally. Man. So you have found yourself in a, quite a bit of pain when it came to that per, personal cost of inaction. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you, can, you can speak on as much of it as you want in case you wanted to tell the whole story all over again. That's a, totally an option, and I'm totally cool with that. But uh, yeah, how is it that you learned that personal uh, experience? How have you personally experienced the cost of inaction? Okay, so I'll give the, I'll give the synopsis from it just for our viewers and audience here. So yeah, so... I had a very personal experience with this, and this is even recent, like the last two two years ago. Um, so I got married. I got married to my wife, Gracie, in end of August of 2021. And if we all remember, this was kind of like the peak of the pandemic, you know, like different strains were coming out and and we still weren't back to normal yet, right? There was like some things were open, some things weren't. And, you know, there was a really big stressful time and, and getting to the wedding was such a huge big celebration for us. It was like, we made it happen. We planned a wedding in six months. We were the crazy kids and we did it. Right. And the day after it was one of those stories where like, it probably should have been on the news. Like day after I started feeling a little tired, a little groggy, but I just kind of shucked it off and was like, well, you know, married into a, a Hispanic family. There was lots of dancing, lots of drinks, lots of celebration. I'm probably just tired. Right. And, you know, for anyone who's been married, I think the day of is always exhausting, you know, from getting ready to go in into all of it. So I was like, yeah, I'm just pretty wiped out. And there was another continuance of celebrating after. So I just kind of rocked through it. And it wasn't until the following Monday that I got hit like a ton of bricks that, and I've always been healthy and I was young and I'm like, you know what? Like I know nutrition, I know health, like, okay, I'm sick. Right. And I was very avoidant to the idea of what it could have been. And, you know, had, you know, 103, 104 fever for like three or four days straight, terrible body aches and everything I had planned for that week just got kiboshed. I was like, I'm sick. I need to recover, you know, I'll do what I can. 
So my wife came home from work that day and I was like, Hey, I think you should test me. I said, cause I don't, I don't feel that well. <laughs> like I'm feeling like terrible. She's like, all right. So she brings a test out. Boom. We test me. And within like two minutes, it was as positive as it could be. And she just looks at me and she's like, yeah, you're positive. You have COVID. And I'm like, Oh man, like this, this is terrible. You know? And I'm like, I was priding myself so much and going through so far of not getting COVID and not being sick and always being healthy. And I was like, all right, you know, and in my head, I was stubborn. I'm a very stubborn person, especially when it comes to optimism. And I was like, well, it's not that bad, right? Like yeah, I've had fevers before. I've had body aches before. I've had the flu. It's not that bad. I can fight this off at home. And it kept kind of getting a little bit worse at the time. And I just kept saying, it's not that bad. And every time it would get a little worse, we would elevate our action. You know, my sister-in-laws were, they had some pool and some medical facilities. So they had doctors and nurses talking to me on the phone and sending in, you know, at home, at home, uh, air condensators and stuff like that, you know, and we were doing everything that we could. And even up until Wednesday, um, you know, uh, even up until Wednesday, we had a second paramedics come in our first round of paramedics come in. And I was just thinking like, okay, I can still beat this. And they even told me that they're like, yeah, man, COVID's pretty bad. You know, we all kind of fought it off at home. Hospitals are backed up. So if you could stay here, that'd probably be better, but it's really up to you whether, where you want to go. But I kept telling myself, it's not that bad. Right. And got worse. And it wasn't until Friday that, you know, my wife asked me again, she was like, do you want me to call the paramedics? She was like, you look pretty bad. <laughs> I'm like, and at that point I felt bad. And so I was like, yeah, call them. Like, I'll go at this point. So we called the paramedics. They come. And sure enough, within like two minutes, they're like, yeah, buddy, like we need to take you in. You're pretty bad, you know? And so it all happened pretty much in a big flash. You know, before I knew it, it was in a gurney going out to the ambulance before that it was, or after that it was okay. Now I'm in the ambulance. They got the lights and sirens going. They're driving like 60 miles an hour down residential to get me there. And I'm just kind of like absorbing it all in going, wow, like I'm actually in an ambulance right now. Like, I just didn't think it was this bad. Right. Like I'm, I'm thinking everyone's over exaggerating around me a little bit. And even when I got into, you know, getting admitted and, you know, to the ER and stuff like that, you thought that would have been the turning point for me. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. I'm still over here being very optimistic. Like, yeah, I got COVID, whatever, you know, it's, it is what it is. And so they get me up and they actually admit me a few hours later into the COVID unit and pretty much told me they're like, yeah, so you do have COVID pneumonia and it's pretty bad and get ready for nothing less than 30 days here. And the combination like, is absolutely brutal. Oh, it was. And, you know, from again, like I like to think I have a very high pain threshold. It was it was equivalent to just like my lungs just being just in this stranglehold, you know, to take the most shallowest of, of a breath. And it was painful. And so they get me up there and, you know, the ER doctor comes in. He's like, all right, well, you've already had COVID for X amount of many days. We can only give you so much medication. You're about two steps away from being on a ventilator. You know, we have you on high flow oxygen. There's one more step. And the third step is, yeah, vent, which is not what I wanted. And so I'm like, okay. And so they're like, just do your best, rest up. And then right away, they're like, we need you sleeping on your stomach. Which is the most uncomfortable thing in the world, especially when you're hooked up to machines, you know, getting your blood drawn every couple hours, you know, it's, it was terrible. So anyways, next day rolls around and doctor comes back in again later that night on the second day. And I'm optimistic thinking, okay, there had to be some change. I got at least one round of medication. I've been on high flow oxygen. I've not done anything. Like I've just been letting the medical staff pretty much take care of me. And he was Mr. Doom and Gloom, right? And I'm really big on optimism. And I remember just saying like, okay, cool. Any improvement? And he's like, nope. I'm like, huh. Okay, that was pretty definitive and pretty quick. 
And uh, along with just his answers, it was more so his tone and his body language. And I'm like, yeah, this doesn't feel very good. So I asked the silly question, which I know no medical staff probably could have given me an answer at that time, even legally. I was like, well, am I going to make it? And I think it was the Somerson approach he had. He really just said, I can't tell you that. And then just kind of walked out. And I remember that was the kind of the blow that hit me. And I'm like, okay, I'm away from my wife. We just got married, my family. And I just had a doctor telling me that I, he doesn't know if I want to make it. And I'm like, the idea actually crossed my mind. And I'm like, man, what if I don't? Like, you know, I'm over here, been kind of brushing this off, thinking it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And it's been getting consistently worse. And so I was very defeated. I remember bawling my eyes out inside, you know, the hospital room and just thinking like, wow, like what a big 180 we went from just planning a wedding, celebrating to all of a sudden, boom, now you're fighting for your life. And so the next day, they actually got me a different doctor, which I was very happy about. And I was like, okay, at least I could rock with this. Just lie to me and tell me things are going to be great. And I'm sure somehow it will. And um, he came in, he's like, well, he's like, all right, you know, and he did have a better optimism, which was great. He says, are you open to experimental medication? And I'm like, yeah. before he finished, I said, yes, right? Don't even know what it is. Don't even know what such. So yes, just it was, I wanted to change that much. I wanted to get out of the position I was in. So he's like, okay. He's like, well, we'll put you on the list. We don't know what will come through. There's not a lot, to be honest. He's like, um, uh, so if we find something, we'll let you know. I'm like, okay. So again, it was still very crummy with a lot of the situations, my oxygen, all the stuff. So the next day after that, he pretty much came in. He goes, well, we do have one dose. We were able to scrape up one. It just got emergency clearance about a couple of weeks ago to get used. Do you want it? And again, I was just like, yeah, sure. Like, I'm not going to say no. Anything to get me somewhat better, let's let's run for it. So they did. One dose. And he even told me, he goes, I don't know if one dose is even going to do anything for you, but at least it's worth a shot. And that's always been my approach. It doesn't have to be 100%. Winning is winning. <laughs> if, it's, yeah. if it's by 1%, 10%, great. I don't care. And so they did, they gave me that dose and started to get better, you know, and it was really just a, a big blessing and a miracle to be able to make such a fast turnaround that in fact, even the medical staff started raising eyebrows and, you know, they're like, you're doing really good, really fast. And I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, blessing of God and monks, medical staff here. Like it's a big combination here. You're like, yes. And so I was getting really happy. And so my only focus at that point was I need to get out of the hospital. I want to get back home. I want to get to my family, my wife, my, my stepdaughter, my dog, like everything, you know? And um, they pretty much said, okay, if we can get you to X point with your oxygen here, you know, the saturation levels here, and they gave me some numbers and like, if we can get you here, we, you can probably go home. I'm like, okay, now you just gave me a target to hit, right? I can, I can hit targets. I like targets. And so that's what I started focusing on. And so I got really excited and I hit the target. I said, hey, I said, I can go home now, right? Like, you guys can start the process and all that. They're like, mm, yeah, but you're getting a little too good, a little too fast. Like, we've seen people take turns. So why don't we move the target over here now and move it further down the line? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, all right. So now I'm trying to hit target number two that they gave me, right? I hit it. Now I'm all excited again. Like, okay, that's your second target now. You guys already moved it once. Now we should be really good. And I remember doing that and one of the nurses was kind of, was not having it. And she was like, oh, okay, well, if you think you're good to go then, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to do pretty much an ablation test right now. So I want you to stand up and take your oxygen off and start walking around, which mind you, I'd been bedridden for days already, almost a whole week. And I'm like, oh, well, okay, you just threw me that into that one, but I'll go for it. And so I remember I got up, I took the oxygen off. I almost passed out, right? Like it was a big slap to the face, like, oh, you're doing good, but you're not that good yet. 
And she kind of was, you know, gloating in that. She's like, okay, see, like, this is why we need to keep you here longer. And I'm like, okay. And I was irritated. So I put my oxygen back on and I sat there and I sulked and I just felt defeated. I was like, man, I've, this is the best I felt in the last couple of days. You know, I feel like I have life coming back into me and I feel like I'm so close to getting out of here. And in that moment of feeling defeated, all of a sudden it was like, I had this, this light bulb click. And I just, that light bulb was like, man, I don't need anyone's permission to push myself to get out of this and do everything within my power that I can in this hospital bed to get healthy and to get home. And so I just decided to say, you know what? I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to walk and I'm going to train myself up to pass this next test. And so I remember looking at my oxygen monitor and I had about like six feet of six feet space next to my hospital bed. And I literally just got up and just started pacing the floor back and forth, back and forth. And I would take little small intermittent breaks here and there. And I'd watch the machine and I'd see, okay, I'm dropping to like 86, 84. Sometimes the alarm would be going off, you know, and they'd be saying, Hey, why is your oxygen dropping? Don't worry about it. And every so often they would come in and they would be like, Mr. Maxwell, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm walking. <laughs> I'm walking. I want to do this. And they're like, okay. And they're all skeptical, but I honestly, I walked for like two to three hours straight just in six feet of six feet back and forth. I was so determined. And I finally hit that third goal where even the doctor was like, kind of looking at the clipboard. He's like, yeah, you, you really, man, like we're really speechless on how fast you turn things around from how you came in a couple of days ago, you know? And he pretty much didn't have anything else to say to me other than just, I would personally feel better if you stayed longer. And I'm like, okay, now we're not even going off of data here or actual medical stuff. We're just going off of personal feelings. I've been, I've been here. Yes. Almost nine days. I want to leave. I want to go home. If you're telling me medically, everything is sound and it's now just for your own personal comfort to stay. I don't want to. And so, yeah, I had actually signed myself out AMA. Right. And because they already delivered my at-home healthcare and all that stuff. And then voila, I went home. And so that's pretty much a nutshell of, again, my own personal experience of putting things off saying, it's not that bad. It's not that bad until it got to a very low point in that process to realize things aren't that bad, buddy. Like you need to wake up and, and start doing what you can within your own, within your own power. Mm. Do you, do you recognize in that, in that time, do you recognize where there was a very obvious, maybe like from stubborn to something else or just, yeah, from stubborn to something else where uh, like a shift needed to happen to go from discouragement and defeat to buckle up buttercup and then you're just doing six foot paces yeah i you know what i forgot who i was and you know i've always been a very strong hearted person from man not even just my entrepreneurial life at 18 but even before that but i was always fearless and people would always think i was nuts and they think oh life's gonna slap them down and sure it did at times but you know again I, i started you know i started my coaching business at 18 you know i opened up my first studio at the age of 20 you know, and people thought I was nuts. They're like, you signed a building lease. You have a gym like in your 20. Like, yeah, like I'm just going all steam ahead. And, you know, I believe I'd rather just, you know, redline it till the wheels fall off and then we'll fix it and keep going. And at some point in the process of all this, I broke and I forgot about that. And I felt like I was strangle held to just listening to everything else. And I was powerless and Kind of like what you said, you need no permission. I realized I don't need permission to stand up and push myself. I know my body. They don't know my body. They don't know what I'm feeling right now. They can see the numbers and they can see the blood work and all that. And I'll give them that. But I'm going to do what I can within me. 
and I'm going to reclaim my power back and push myself in the ways that I can push myself to get better. I'm not going to sit by and just expect everyone else to do all the work, you know? So yeah, that was the mindset shift was I had to remember who I was, who, who Chris Maxwell was in order to, you know, do that. And of course, again, it wasn't just me. It was everything. It was blessings from God. It was amazing medical staff, my family support, my wife support, all that stuff was, was all trivial to it. But, um, that was probably the, the mental shift that happened. That's very cool. So I uh, find myself to be also a very disgustingly optimistic individual. Um, yeah, I'm pretty wired in the mornings and uh, sometimes I'm pretty loud as well. So if I go over to the gym, it's like, what's up? And then people are like, oh man, it's too, it's too early for that shit, man. And uh, I, I like to try actively trying to try and find uh, the more optimistic or I find that if there's an optimistic filter, there's at least a higher probability of things to get better. Uh, but I was curious about where your where your optimism was rooted from. Is it something that you developed over time? Were you pessimistic for a long time, then developed optimism? Were your parents both optimistic? Were one of them optimistic? Were, are you optimistic because both of them are heavily pessimistic? Where did that come from? Because it seems to be a predominant... It seems to be a predominant characteristic that you refer back to. Mm -hmm. So there was like three people involved with this with the raising. So that would be my father, my mother, and my grandmother. My grandmother actually lived with us. And I guess I was, my, my mother would always say that even at a young age, I was kind of fearless, right? I don't know if optimistic was the right word, but I guess fearless, you know, like I just wasn't afraid to try things and to do things. Um, but I think as I got older, I definitely did actually in my teenage years and like, you know, my younger years and stuff like that, like I did develop a level of pessimism, right? And, you know, uh, understanding kind of where that comes from, that's a whole nother story. But, you know, I was, yeah, I was always feeling like, oh, the other shoe is going to fall off. What's going to happen here? What do I say that here and do this? And it's very uh, strangling, you know, to be in that pessimistic state of always kind of like wondering what bad is going to happen next or nah, this will never work. And, you know, again, I think upbringing is important. Environment has a big impact on that. And, you know, my mother was, you know, an entrepreneur in her own way. And so she had that up level of optimism, you know, but the one that I always found that was the most optimistic for me was my grandmother. And the, the best part about it was she had this saying of where, you know, do you want the truth or do you want to keep looking through the rosy colored glasses? And what was weird is like, and I don't know the psychology behind this, so I'd love to find out if someone can tell me, but there's times where it's like, I would be like, just give me the rosy colored glasses. Cause that's what I need to hear right now. And I know I'm going to make it out of this, right? Whether you want to tell me the truth or not, tell me the fluffy version that'll kind of pump me up a little bit that I know I can get through, through, through this mm. or whatever it is, you know? And so I think I start little bits of that of all three of my mother, my, uh, my father and my grandmother kind of bred it onto me. And then once I be kind of became 18, I kind of be able to started to lay my own path and kind of use my own evidence at that point, you know, of just where optimism comes from and, you know, being fearless and just trying things and going for it. That's pretty cool. So since that was ingrained or like over a young period of time, so a long duration of time that was ingrained into your mind, how would you teach optimistic fearlessness? So where that pretty much comes from, at least the way I would teach it is essentially just saying you have to train yourself to look for wins. You have to train yourself to look for optimism, 
right? Maybe you weren't dealt the best hands of cards, whether it be growing up, whether it be life experiences, whatever it may be. And at the end of the day, you have two choices. Yes, we can get all negative and we can sit and sulk and complain. What does that actually do for us, right? I think I use a very common phrase, you know, my family will even test to it. How does this serve you, right? How does feeling like this serve you? How does complaining, how does doing this if we're not looking for a solution? And so when we look for optimism, it's, hey, let's celebrate the wins, right? And there's a great book, Gap in the Game, um, where we do reverse measurement to, in order to see progress. A lot of people have a lot of discouragement because they don't see progress and therefore their optimism tanks whenever they start a journey is because they feel like, man, this isn't working again, right? But the truth is when you train yourself to look for the wins and it could be, hey, yes, I lost an inch this week or maybe it's non-scale victory. Maybe it's, hey, you know what? I have more energy. I didn't get tired until six o'clock in the evening as opposed to me getting tired at three o'clock in the afternoon. Right. And it's just learning to measure these things and to actually look for it. That can come in the form of gratitude, right? Gratitude journaling, gratitude texting, um, you know, just kind of going through to saying, hey, what's going good so far? You know, not a lot of people are trained for that. It's always about doom and gloom, especially what happens in society and social media. It's all the bad stuff. Well, great. Let's talk about what's going good. And over time, when you start to do that more and more often, it gets a lot easier to just naturally be optimistic even if things are going upside down it's chaotic you know i can internalize a lot of chaos and stresses and just be like it's gonna be fine it's gonna work out some way you know like you know and that's just kind of how i roll but i mean as far as the teaching yet i would definitely say measuring your wins you know mm. that's that's definitely a big thing there i think that's really sweet uh when it comes to looking at things through a filter or, or measuring wins something that i use and i i kind of use it where it's a tactic for me to change language and catch my opinions. So if I find that I am speaking an opinion or maybe a critique or self-criticism, or uh, maybe I'm just being an asshole to myself, mm -hmm. uh, I follow it up with the question of, is this a functioning or a functional opinion? Is this an opinion that is helpful or harmful? So there's a mm -hmm. non-functional and a functional opinion. The non-functional opinions harm us. They do not yeah. allow us to progress. They prevent us from progression by keeping us in the past. And then when we have a functional opinion, or if I call myself out and I'm like, okay, that was a functional opinion. We're going to keep that one. And we're going to completely disregard what that previously non-functional opinion was. That was actually, that's a way where I tried to control my internal dialogue to de to just identify more ingrainedly well-intentioned opinions mm -hmm. that are kind of like just generally accepted as positive, I suppose. That's a great way to put it. And I think I understood it very well. And I have a similar way of looking at it like that. I mean, you use it as functional, non-functional opinions. And I think the conversation that is most important that a lot of people forget about is the conversation they have with themselves mm -hmm. is the, like you said, internal dialogue, the conversations that happen between your two ears, you know, whether you speak it or don't speak it, that's very important. And that's going to determine a lot of different things and your experience of your journey or your days or whatever it may be. And I look at it like having an, an inner critic and an inner advocate right? A critic is just someone who's just going to kind of put you down in the mud and they're just, they're just going to keep criticizing, right? And an advocate is going to be someone who's actually like pumping you up along the way. Like, hey, I'm advocating for you. And it even reminds me of an old, you know, behavioral strategy to help is praise, correct, praise, right? It's the Oreo cookie mm. method. It's 
I'm going to praise you on something great that's going on. This is where I'm going to offer correction. And I'm going to follow up one more praise, right? So we're literally sandwiching it there rather than just being correct, 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 critic, critic, critic. That can get very dull at times, right? And it might work for some. Some people are negatively charged where it's they need to have that I'll prove you wrong, you know, uh, status in order for them to do great things. Um, I don't believe that to be for everybody. I'm not that person. I'm not someone who says I need to go prove this person wrong or I need to prove society. No, you know, I just, you know, again, it's if you want to get the most out of someone, how do I advocate for them? You know, and so I think that's a very similar approach to what you're talking about there with the functional, non-functional opinions to yourself. So it's, yeah, it's learning to how to have those silence the inner critic and you want to essentially, you know, um, expand the volume of the inner advocate. Totally. I like the inner advocate. Well, I think advocate just like, it just seems, feels like a really epic word. Like it's, it just looks cool. It's like Avengers style, you know, where it's just a cool font, but, uh, I, I, I switch, I switch mine into the inner role model and the rival, the role model and the mm-hmm. rival. So the best version of ourselves and the not so great versions of ourselves, but that's the self that we are competing against presently. And I find that in the present, who we are is that path. Like we can listen to the rival or we can get advice from the advocate, the, the role model. I love that. I like these little mind games that we have to play on ourselves. Like it's so funny. It's so interesting. Who's, who's been a big influence in your uh, mental mapping out, like in your frameworks and stuff like that? Because I very much so admire like you're speaking. It's like you're digging into my brain, just ripping things out. And I just think it's just cool. I don't know. And that that's the hard part. I don't think there's any one person I could pinpoint it on, or there's not any type of mentor or role model or program that I could say, ah, this was for me. You know, I, you know, I will say this, I've had a great mentor by the name I mentioned earlier, Joe Marku. And he's got this uh, saying, he's like, you know what, keep them. It's like trigger like spare ribs, keep the meat, throw away the bone. Right. And I've done that with a lot of mentors and programs. Not everything that comes out of everyone's mouth is going to be gold. Right. It may be gold for them. It may be gold for other people. Right. And I learned to pretty much extract the information, the knowledge that brings benefit to me, right? And that actually has proven power to say, hey, this is the great positive stuff that this brought by operating this way, by thinking this way, by not thinking this way, by not operating this way, right? And I've gotten this, and I'll just mention a few of them. So Craig Valentine will be one of them. Uh, Joe Marku, Bedros Koulian, um, you know, even just listening to, you know, even just people that I'm not personally connected with, but it's even certain things that you see on social media. I mean, uh, Jordan Peterson could be one of them. Um, you could even look at Lewis Hose. You mentioned that earlier, you know, um, there's a lot to look at different things. Um, and it's a really just a big extraction of all that, you know, and if it makes sense, it makes sense. And if it doesn't, then part ways with it, you know? So that's kind of the approach that I take with it. So I can't narrow down one person, but it's definitely, it's definitely a group. Uh, that's all good. I really like the uh, analogy of keep the meat, throw away the bone. And I, uh, I think where folks, where the, the simplest trick or trick that I've implemented to make my own progress is exactly that is not, it's not taking components of the whole person that you look up to and trying to become that person. It's taking particular characteristics that you really admire that you wish to embody. And for, for example, I would say Jordan Peterson for me is how he can calmly handle himself during any heated time and how he controls his own heatedness. And I admire that. I admire Lewis House's productivity. 
Lewis House was the very first podcast I've ever listened to. And now I started a podcast. So that's just, that's like an example. Uh, I think, I think is, do you find that there's ever been a trick that has been kind of associated with that, where you just recognize a characteristic or a trait and you're like, I'm going to kind of implement that. Or have you done it kind of subconsciously just by listening the, from all these peeps? Yeah, I think it's probably more of a subconscious approach for me. You know, it's if I'm drawn to something, you know, again, I one of my greatest gifts, I think, is reverse engineering and just saying, hey, cool, how do I reverse map this for me? Or how do I break this down into steps? Um, and a lot of the great information that's being supplied these days, it's already kind of broken into steps. It's not like it's some ethereal idea. It's just that, hey, cool, this is how you need to operate. And again, it's it's things of saying, cool, if you want the most out of your life, the more you can control the better. Great, cool. That actually makes sense now. You know, and once you actually work through it a couple of times and then you also start teaching it, that's when you really start to master it, right? Mastery happens when you teach, you know, and just because there's a level of it that you have to, yes, you have to do it yourself, but then now you're actually showing it to other people for them to get positive results as well. I absolutely love that. Nice. So what is it or what role? And I love asking this question to my guests because I find a common denominator with my guests that I've had on so far, they have like a deep love. Uh, for improving themselves and other people's lives. So what role does love play in what you do and how you live? Mm, that's a good one. Um, has a big role, you know, right? So, I mean, you have to know, I mean, if you look at the basis of love, it keeps no record of wrongs, right? And with that, I think for, for everybody is that they have to know that like your your past is not your future, right? And that it can always be better right? Like that's always the approach that I take. Um, you know, that's a really big one. Um, I think when I work with clients and they come in and they, after they've been with me for a fair amount of time, a couple months, maybe I hear this often is I didn't expect there to be this much grace involved, like joining a program, working with a coach, being around other women who are involving these new strategies. I thought it was going to be a lot more rigid and cut and dry and like finger shaking and all this stuff. And there's not, I said, of course not. And again, that comes from my own personal perspective of like, again, you want to get the most out of somebody. How do you do that? Again, I'll go back to the inner advocate. I want to advocate for them. I want to, you know, advocate grace upon them and stuff like that. So I'll definitely say that that's how I feel. Love definitely plays a big part of the impact that we bring is again, love keeps no record of wrongs, right? This isn't conditional love. This is love. I love that. Love keeps no records of wrongs. That is amazing. So how, what would I need to understand about you as a child to understand the Chris Maxwell that is in front of me right now? Mm. A very vast imagination. <laughs> so mm. lots of creativity. Um, you know, I think I like to look at things. I'm very, along with creativity, I'm also very solution-minded. I actually like challenges. If anything, you present me a challenge, I will actually draw to it more. Um, I get very honed in. I think as a kid, I remember I'd even get honed in. If I couldn't figure something out, I would like go to the point where my head was going to explode because I'm like, I got to figure this out. And I think maybe that's why I've subconsciously kind of even drifted in towards people with hormonal imbalances. That's kind of a weird land. Not everyone knows how to navigate through. And it feels like a puzzle within your own body and you feel stuck. But I'm like, oh, let's 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 crack this code together. Let's figure it out together. Like, you know, I want to see you win. You know, to me, it's just that inner challenge, you know. 
Uh, so yeah, if, if that's one that you can understand with me as a kid, it was that imagination plus just the problem solving that I actually like to do. And while most people might solve the problem by going left, I would actually try to solve the problem by going right. And I can't tell you how many times my math teacher would tell me, Chris, yes, your answer is correct, but the way you did it was wrong. I'm like, well, what does it matter? I got the correct answer, you know, but that's probably what you'd have to understand about me. Nice. That's the difference between convergent thinking and divergent thinking. Convergent is one problem, one solution. Divergent is one problem, multiple solutions. So have do you know, would you be able to explain your, let's say there's no context to the problem. Would you be able to explain how you go about resolving a problem through this process of creativity? Yeah. I mean, I can give an easy one. I mean, at first of all, I look at what does the solution look like, right? Let's get specific on the solution. Then. What is what does it specifically look like, right? And I think once you start to look at the specifics, again, it's this is everything that I preach and teach. It's cool. How do I measure progress towards the solution? What is that mm. metric, right? If if the metric is apples, but I'm measuring with oranges, well, I'm probably never going to solve this problem. So I have to understand what is the metric that is that I'm using to say I solved it. How do I know when I solved it, right? And once you get really crystal clear on that, it's understanding and break this down. Cool. How? What are some action steps, right? This is the outcome for the solution. What's the process to get this, the outcome now? Because there's there's a difference between having goals and process goals, right? Goals is the mm. repeated action of what we got to do to get there, and the outcome is just the finish line. So I mean, again, whatever problem it is you know it can wiki whether it's you know a physical and health problem whether it's a financial problem whether it's a relationship problem or a communication problem cool what's where's the disconnect what do we have to do and i think you know again it's understanding it's a rinse and repeat process you give yourself grace to this process um you know again mess up try again mess up try again you know um that's essentially the process that i would do is i get really crystal clear on the outcome and then just reverse engineer of how do we get there you know, metrics, specificity, all that. Beautiful. Yeah, it was very well articulated. I, I find that I, I'd be willing to take the gander that you're probably really, really good at transforming transformers without the instructions. Just a thought. <laughs> that's I've never heard that before. That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I love that. How have you, how have you um what has been Okay, let's go with this one. Let's let's think of a let's think of a problem. I want to see if you can solve. Just like as a just like a mind exercise, a thought exercise. Where has the where has the solutions oriented thought process or where do you recognize that now? Where is it that you recognize where it's just quick little pivots to really uh I'm not really sure where I'm going with it, but I want to try coming up with a kind of like an overarching generalized life kind mm -hmm. of process. So if we were to think of the outcome being fulfillment and joy, right? What would be the steps and the measurable processes to get to that point for an individual? Okay. Well, if you, can I use you with this? Is that of course, cool? Of course. Okay, cool. No, I'm too shy, man. I'm too shy. Oh, you're too shy. <laughs> what is your description of joy and fulfillment? Uh, the, my description of joy and fulfillment is the pursuit of self-betterment 
and being a positive contribution to the human race. Okay. So we'll start with the first half. What does self-betterment look like? Measurable improvement from week to week. Okay. So measurable improvement. What are the areas of improvement that you would consider? Health, wealth, relationships, and happiness. Okay. All right. So a lot of those, I mean, I think our two of those are very easy to measure. I think the other two, you'd have to say, cool, what do I have control over? What do I don't, right? Relationships are a two-way street. You can really do your best half of it, but there's still another person or another party involved, right? Mm -hmm. So there's only so much control that you have, right? The wealth, I'd feel you have a very fair amount of control, if not a lot, right? Like those are really just numbers. <laughs> it's learning how to solve problems, right? And trade and some, something, same thing when it comes to health. You know, you have your metrics upon, you know, yes, you could have medical conditions. You can get blood work done quarterly, probably even more than quarterly, you know, and saying, cool, like, what can I do for this? Right. And saying, what metrics does that look like? Does it look like weight loss? Does it look like better blood work? Does it look like a better A1C, lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure? Cool. How, what are we doing to get there? Right. So those small pivots, I think is just, again, it's, it's what we just did right there. Cool. Let's get really crystal clear on what this is. Cool. So if that's the case, I want to work on my blood pressure, right. Over the next 90 days, right. What should I be doing? Well, for us to determine, do I need medical intervention at first though, just to kind of handle the problem at bay, knowing that this isn't going to be a long-term solution, but it's going to get me in a better spot to have long-term success. Right. Okay, great. Now looking at my nutrition, what needs to change there? Right. What's my baseline? Okay. Understanding for this sodium. Yes. Is a very common enemy that doctors talk about. Oh, watch your sodium intake. That's half the battle. The secret one no one talks about is potassium. Right. Mm. Potassium is a counter antagonist to sodium. In fact, if anything, people are not always over salted or over sodium, which they can be majority of the time they are under potassium. Right. Okay. Potassium RDAs should be in the neighborhood of like 4,700 or 4,300. I think it's 4,700 milligrams per day. The best I've seen out of people actually taking a strong approach towards it is like 3,000, right? Mm. When sodium, it's very easy to go over the thresholds. And if actually studies say like, people say, oh yeah, 2,300 is where you want to stay. Not really. That's the max, right? And if anything, the AHA even did a study saying you can do far less, like 1,500 and even less than that per day. And again, it's understanding okay, if I want better blood pressure, let me just start working it back and understanding specifics. I think clarity is a very important thing when it comes to pivoting. So mm -hmm. having that clarity of where I want to go first, what is my agenda? Now I can start working it back, right? So I think, again, just small pivots that anyone can take is, again, this is where I want to go. This is where I'm at. How far is this gap, right? And you could take the smart approach, right? Specific, measurable. I think it's attainable, right? Realistic and time bound. Okay, that's the big one. A lot of people don't have time bounds on their goals, so therefore it's just wishful thinking. Oh, I time bound? What is a time bound? Well, time bound is like saying, cool, I wanna, I wish I could get off medication. Great, by when? Mm. What, where, when, why, who, right? Like those are the, when you start asking problem solving questions, you can get to a lot of answers that usually a lot of people don't have, right? What do I need to do? How do I need to do it? Why do I need to do it? Who is going to teach me what to do and how to do it and why I need to do it? And when? Nice. So again, it's just really just taking a problem-solving approach, you know? What other create, creative uh, endeavors do you have or creative outlets? Creative outlets, man. Cooking. I'll definitely say it's creative. 
dude you're like you're like a soul brother dude (laughs) <laughs> now I love, uh, definitely that's probably a big creative outlet for me is, is cooking. Um, and I just kind of, that's one of those things I fell into it too. I was doing a lot of it and I'm like, man, I really want my food to taste good, but I'm also going to try to bring the healthiest manner to this as possible. So like, again, that's a problem solution. Okay. What do I substitute for heavy whipping cream? You know what? I could probably go down this path and use this instead, you know, or vice versa. I don't want to use this cut of meat. I prefer this, you know, like Again, just that's probably a definitely a creative outlet. That's something that's always fun. You know, it's a process. You know, you get to go from, and I'm someone who enjoys the entire process, which is even going to the market, picking out your food, going back, prepping it, cleaning it, and then even that post-enjoyment. And I guess the next level of enjoyment after that isn't just for me and my taste buds. I want to serve. I want to know, like, did my wife and did my daughter like it? Did they enjoy it? Great. We all liked it. Heck, the dog even loved it, right? But he loves everything. Something that yeah. counts. But yeah, it's when you're, it's when you feel bad about the meal that you ate, that yeah. you could give it to the dog and feel good about someone eating it. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Cooking is a big one for me. I, one of my, so there's like the five love languages, acts of service is a love language of mine and uh, cooking is definitely one of my, one of my go-tos and Kendra loves it. So it's pretty awesome. I'm pretty pumped about it. That's pretty cool. What's your favorite? This is, I ask a lot of random questions on podcasts, say, but uh, what what would be your go to meal if you're on a cooking competition? This comes from passion, not necessarily from how it turns. Well, I guess I can say it turns out pretty good. Dude, I am my go to is a steak, and whether this be a, a ribeye, New York, tomahawk, you name it, like that is my go to for something that I would love to cook. And again, just trying everything that I can, learning different things, reverse sears, you know, whatever, you know, like this, not that, you know, what am I pairing it with? Is it going to be a chimichurri? Is it going to be a compound butter? Like there do I, yeah, I really get into that stuff and you don't have to pull my arm to have a steak night. No. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, man. Eventually at some point I'll come down and visit and then I'll get one of those steaks. <laughs> Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, my friend, you dropped like a tall, solid chunk of knowledge bombs and I'm starting to get into random questions. Uh, so honestly, I just got two questions left for you and it's going to be the closeout questions. And, uh, I'm pretty excited to hear what your answers are because your this, this has been a very insightful episode. I really, uh, enjoy the way you articulate your frameworks, your thought processes. I love the alliterations that you're whipping out. I think that, um, when we were talking before you really deconstruct things into a digestible manner and you definitely brought that to the table. There is, I have pages of notes that I'm just going to go through and check it out all over again. And I'm definitely stealing a couple of things like the COI with the cost of inaction. I think that that is an amazing takeaway for anyone that's listening, uh, pulling yourself out of defeat when you feel like you're at the most discouraged point just take those six feet, take those six foot steps or take that six feet of travel in order to get somewhere. Um, Stop seeking permission. Why are you waiting? All these things. Like you have some awesome knowledge bombs, my man. So I'm very grateful for you to be on this episode. And yes, I think that you are a positive contribution to the ladies that you help. And they're a bunch of badasses, I'm sure too. I love that. Thank you, Kyle. I definitely appreciate it. My pleasure. So the final question, well, second, second, last question It's dark set in the context. It's the end of your times. You're on your deathbed. No content of yours exists. 
the people that you love or you're around you, what is a piece of advice that you want to pass on? Stop waiting. Yeah, stop waiting. The time is always now, right? Like now is the time. Um, your happiness and, and your health and all that is supposed to be designed into your present, not postponed for your future. So, you know, it's not something you wait on. It's not something you say this is for next month or after, you know, next quarter or whatever it is. No, figure it out now. That is awesome. Man, you need some burn ointment for how much fire that statement had. <laughs> Uh, so the last one, you have the best version of you, the Chris maxed out rather than just the Chris max. Well, it's maxed out. So the best version of you is sitting next to you and you guys are having a heart to heart and your higher self, your advocate is uh, saying, man, it's okay. In this season of your life, what advice is that Chris going to give you? Move faster. And yeah, move faster. And I resonate with that a lot because even in my younger years, it was told to me to slow down, right? Slow down, you're redlining. And this is something that I even share a lot is sustainability and speed. I think people have this correlation that if you go too fast, it's not sustainable. They're actually not connected at all. Sustainability is through the method that you do it, the strategy that you use, right? Speed is just the metric. How fast are you going? And what I'll give to myself now is just to move faster. If it if you fall flat on your face, do it more often until you find your yes. How many no's do you have to go through until you get a yes? If it's 10 no's, I want to go through those 10 no's as fast as I can to get to the yes, right? And the yes could be the solution, right? So I'd rather mess up as fast as I can, go back to the drawing board and keep trying until I get that solution rather than stretching that time. Awesome, dude. That was That's an awesome answer. So folks... Got some fire in this episode. Be sure to go back and probably listen to it twice. Take a couple of the uh, notes that I may have taken too. Share them out if you wish. Uh, awesome knowledge bombs. So outside of that, my man, where can people find you? That's great. So you can definitely find me tagged somewhere here on this video. If not, I'll drop a comment down here below. Connect with me via Facebook or you can connect with me on Instagram. So the Instagram handle is at Coach Chris Maxwell. Uh, Give me a follow, drop a DM if you need some help or if you want some general questions. Let me know you saw this podcast. Let me know your favorite point, but those are the two main places that you can reach me at. Very nice. So folks, if you loved today's episode, please do me a favor right now, share it on your Instagram stories and tag me with my handle at Warrior Body Kyle, along with at Coach Chris Maxwell. That is one of the ways that we grow. And until next time, I hope your day treats you as good as you look.